Hi friends, welcome to the Psyche Mental Wellbeing Podcast with me, your host, Hannah. On the show, I'm joined each episode by an amazing guest to have an honest conversation, share our real life experiences and tackle stigma and misconceptions around mental health along the way. We believe that everyone would benefit from focusing a little more on their mental well-being, and we're here to support you to do just that. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoy the show. Hi, everyone, and welcome back. Hope you are having a good Monday, and I'm doing good. Do you know what? I'm recording this on a Sunday, and the sun is out. Woo! <laughs> And I was talking to some friends the other day and we probably went into lockdown. Um, It was probably a little bit later than this uh, last year. And the weather made such a difference. We were really blessed with some amazing weather here in the UK. And it does have such a big impact on how you feel and uh, on your mindset. And today I've not had much opportunity to enjoy the sun yet because I have been volunteering this morning so I got up I've been inside uh, on the phones volunteering I've come home I've been coaching but now I once I have finished this we'll be sitting out in the garden with my pup-pup enjoying the sunshine for a bit and honestly it does make a huge difference to how I'm feeling so um, that's how my weekend's going uh, I also after this will be going out to complete my final run of couch to 5k it's been nine weeks of running and I was thinking yesterday and I've spoken about this before about this runner identity that actually when do I start calling myself a runner and actually for the last four weeks I have been doing three runs a week full runs of at least 20 minutes this week is half hour so I guess this means I'm a runner um which is uh, yeah, interesting, but I'm I'm very, very proud of myself for having reached this because I, for a long time, had said that I'm not a runner. Uh, and I guess it just shows, it's something that I've talked about before, that changing the way that you view things. And when I was seeing it as something that I had to do, or I should do, or it was a way of, I guess, punishing myself for eating the tasty, fatty foods, I didn't want to do it. And when I changed my mindset to one of thinking about nurturing my body, of challenging myself, or of doing something that is going to benefit other things that I'm really passionate about, so my, my CrossFit and my Jiu-Jitsu, actually it was easier. And because I really had made that commitment to myself that it was a change I wanted to make, not just I want to change, but I'm not prepared for what that looks like, really actually getting on board for making that change which I think is something that we we can say we want something but deep down we maybe don't really want it or we don't really feel able to make that change or we sabotage in all those ways and I have many times and if you've been listening for a long time last year you will have known where I sort of said oh I'm going to challenge myself and I'm going to run and I'm going to see what I can do and I didn't do it (laughs) last year but Uh, And even then I was thinking about nurturing myself and challenging myself. And obviously that really wasn't what worked for me. (laughs) So for me, what made it click was that thinking, I enjoy this thing, the CrossFit and the Jiu-Jitsu. I want to be better at it. I want to increase my performance at it. So this thing will help. And by linking it to something that I already enjoyed and was passionate about and wanted to be better at, that is the thing that worked for me. And it might be different for you. It might be the challenge. It might be enjoyment. It might be whatever. But I guess the big thing is you have to be committed to that thing. You have to really want that change and what that looks like. Uh, And that could be tricky. But after today, I will have completed that run. And I will do it because (laughs) I bought myself a peanut butter brownie uh, to reward myself with. So that is downstairs. I can't have it until I've run. Um, So, yeah. (laughs) that's my Sunday. I hope you are having a a good weekend. Thank you again so much to Harry who joined us on Wednesday. I really enjoyed our conversation and actually the past few days my meditation practice has slipped a little because it's been really busy and actually my yoga was a non-negotiable. Having some downtime just to chill was non-negotiable and my meditation has slipped but 
actually having had that conversation is something that I'm recommitting to for myself because I'd sort of got into a bit of a rhythm of something that worked for me. So that was kind of my my thing that I'm going to work on. Today, I'm, I'm really pleased to share this conversation with you. It's such a good conversation that I had with Jay. And we talked about things I love to talk about. Linguistics is one of them and the power of language because particularly in the mental health space, the language we use can have a massive, massive impact. And it's something I sometimes struggle with with some guests where they use language that maybe is their language for explaining their experience or how they view something, but that can potentially maybe be offensive to other people. And it's it's a difficult thing. Um, But we have a conversation particularly around uh, substance misuse, about the language and how that can really have an impact and really be stigmatizing um, and they're the kind of conversations that I love to have and also if you, um, you're listening and you've seen the title of the episode Jay's uh, thoughts on choosing your struggle it's the name of his podcast I absolutely love as well so I really hope that you enjoy this conversation and I will be back super quickly at the end. Hi, everyone, and I'm really happy to welcome this week's guest, Jay, to the podcast. So, Jay, welcome. And if you could tell us a little bit about yourself, that'd be fab. Well, Hannah, thank you so much for for having me here. It's always amazing to talk to people about the subjects of mental health, substance misuse and all that. And, you know, it's the kind of thing where I always say that we need more people doing this. And so I never miss an opportunity to to chat with someone who, who wants to have these conversations because the more we talk about them, the more other people also feel empowered to talk about them. So uh, for your listeners, I, I uh, you know, clearly from my accent, I'm not uh, English. I am over here in the US and I am a mental health and substance misuse speaker, coach and advocate and the host of the Choose Your Struggle podcast. Awesome. And yeah, thank you so much for joining us. And I also always love talking about mental health with people so um yeah and absolutely I think the more that we talk about it and and have these honest conversations uh, it can really help where there's those misunderstandings and misconceptions and um I'm really pleased that you're with us because I think around substance misuse and recovery there are still so many misconceptions uh, and judgments um so it'd be great to I guess maybe a sensible place to start is hearing a bit of your story of, of how you got to where you are now yeah so um we could talk about this all day and I was actually on a, a podcast not long ago where they wanted the full version and it, we chatted for about an hour and a half and afterwards I was so emotionally exhausted I was just like Ugh. you know I mean that's a that's a the long version which I'm not gonna do today but the, you know sort of the, sh- the shorter version is that my story isn't the one that, that is told a lot and it's not because it's not common in itself it's just that when we hear about people who struggle with substance misuse, they usually fall into one of the regular tropes, right? It's the kid who his friend passed him a joint underneath the bleachers in seventh grade. And Oh my God, now he's a scary addict or whatever. Um, or it's the the one we're hearing, at least here in the U.S., on on the front page of all of our papers, which is the, the high school quarterback who gets his knee blown up, gets prescribed opioids, and then switches to heroin. So those are sort of the two stories you hear when it comes to substance misuse, and mine doesn't fit in that at all. Um, mine was prescription pills, but it came from a misdiagnosis. I was diagnosed with ADHD as a, as a preteen. Um, during the age of sort of the ADHD explosion. I'm 34 years old. And so this would have been the mid to late 90s during a period where uh, prescribing rates here in the US went from roughly 350,000 kids in the in the 80s to by the end of the 90s, we were at over 2 million. And so when you see that sort of explosion, it tells you that my story is not unique. Um, but, but when you put a kid on this sort of chemicals, look, for a lot of people, these can be very helpful. And they, there were positive aspects uh, to, to, to my, my um, inundation with these chemicals. But I'm also going through puberty. And we all remember how, how stressful that can be on the mind and the body. And then on top of that, I am a person who has always struggled with OCD, uh, anxiety. I have depression. And so when you take all of this and add it together, you're going to have some side effects. And unfortunately for me, my therapist saw these side effects and he labeled them symptoms of a larger issue, which he called bipolar disorder. And I was started uh, being treated for that as a late teen in my late teens, went off to college uh, being 
prescribed medication for both bipolar and uh, uh, Concerta for my ADHD. And my mental health just continued to spiral uh, to the point where by the time, um, so I'm going to fast forward here, but from 19 to about 23, uh, I've lost a lot in my life. I'm misusing pretty much every one of those medications that I'm prescribed. Uh, that the analogy I like to use, and I think this will play over there uh, in Europe too, because Hugh Lowry is such an amazing actor. But if you've seen the show House, the way that he pops his Vicodin, that was me with handfuls of one of my medications. And I'm doing that. I'm taking my my ADHD medication and like four other medications on top of this. And that's my every day. And so in the summer of 2009, I'm 23 years old. I gave up. I, I lost all hope because, you know, when you get this label of a pretty serious issue of mental health, and instead of getting better with a lot of medication, you, you're getting worse. It's very easy to understand why I went, well, this is just my life and I don't want to live this life. So I attempted suicide twice. Uh, I overdosed. I spent three weeks in a lockdown unit, um, the kind you see on TV, no shoelaces, no belt, all that kind of stuff. And then was sent to a long-term care facility, uh, what we used to call a mental institution, and spent three months there. And it was at this institution, uh, and I'm going to use that word, by the way, because I want it to be clear to the listeners, this isn't, um, I, it, it is what you've heard. Now, it's a, it's a much nicer place, right? I wasn't chained to a bed, but it was rough at times. And, and while there, I got to know people with both issues of mental health and substance misuse issues. And, and I sort of identified more with, with that group of, of people. And so... I wanted to get off my medication. My therapist in that that facility was not uh, was not in favor of that idea. So I checked myself out and went to live with my grandparents uh, in a in a the state of Arizona, a small town called Cornville, which is the middle of nowhere. You know, it's desert all around you basically. And um, there I went through what's called step down detox, which is where you take a little bit less of your medication, you know, whether it's every day or for, for me, I, I would take a little bit less and then three or four days later, take a little bit less uh, until I was off of everything. And uh, that was the uh, spring of 2010. So for the first time in over uh, almost a decade and a half, I had no medication in my system. And uh, then I started rebuilding my life. And uh, went back to school because I'd failed out of multiple schools, um, started rebuilding relationships with family and friends and, uh, you know, finally got my degree. I, I went back to school and got my degree in psychology in an effort to understand what had really happened with me. Um, and, and then, you know, started building my careers. And, and here I am uh, almost uh, going on 11 years in recovery. And, uh, you know, decided in January of 2019, after doing this work on the side for about four years at that point, that uh, I wasn't doing enough. And, and, you know, I have this mantra, basically, that I am a guy who comes from immense privilege. And I have the biggest privilege you can grant somebody. And that is I'm getting a second chance in a life where most people don't even get there first. And if I wasn't using that for the most good that I could, I would be wasting it. And, and that's not some, you know, uh, religious thing. I'm not a religious guy. It's just the straight facts that uh, that is the fact of my situation. I am getting a second chance when most people don't even get the chance to live one life that I have now lived two of. So uh, I do everything I can to, to talk about these issues, to help end stigma, to essentially at the end of the day, make sure the people who deserve help are getting that help they deserve because too many aren't. And uh, if, you know, here's this guy who has a voice, who has a platform, who has the opportunity um, I think that I'm the number one person that should be doing this work. Amazing. Thank you for, for sharing the story and yeah, for, for the, the work that you're doing. And I think being able to use our platforms, whatever they, they look like, whether it is that you, that you have a podcast yeah. and we'll come back to that later or whether it is just with the people around you, because that can be really powerful as well. hundred percent. Yeah. Thank you um, for sharing the story. And there was something obviously really profound that I was going to ask you <laughs> or comment on. Oh, of course. You were about to, this was Nobel yes. Prize worthy, whatever it is that you were about to say. I mean, always. And then it just goes, you know, just can't quite grab the. Hey, the when that happens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, whatever. It'll come back at some point or it won't. 
Well, so while you're thinking of it, I, I want to uh, sort of go on the, the, what you said about, um, you know, making a change in, in, in even just the people around us is that I am a strong proponent of the idea of waves. And, and I always say this when I speak before you start freaking out and thinking that I'm a guy who doesn't believe in the moon's pool on water or whatever. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the idea that the little action that you and I do can have immense changes, you know, outside of our bubble. And so my goal whenever I speak is to impact that one person, right? Because you never know. And 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 I was having this conversation on my podcast a couple of days ago. Uh, there was a guy who was telling the story of, he gave a speech and three years later, he got an email from someone who said, you know, I gotta be honest, I wasn't paying attention that much when you were speaking. Um, but a friend of mine just told me that she was, struggling with, you know, suicidal thoughts. And I sort of clicked back into what you said. And I knew exactly what to, to say to her. Those are the moments that we do this for, right? And you, you can't know that. And so you really just have to trust that if you're doing the right things, it's going to have that impact because there's no, you know, I'm a big data guy. In fact, I spent a, a part of my career in politics where everything comes down to those numbers but you don't have that in this work, you know? Yes, we can see that it's needed, you know, when we're losing hundreds of thousands of people every year to preventable deaths, we can see that that is needed, but the impact piece, you can't really see it. And so you kind of just have to trust that you're doing mm. the right thing. Yeah, and I and I guess, um, as you said, if, you, if your kind of heart's in it and you are talking for, from that place with authenticity and with that kind of passion for it and, you know, and just kind of going, well, I, it's not about having the most successful podcast in the world. It's not about whatever. It's just, this is an important message. I'm going to share it. 100%. And um, and having that kind of purpose, I guess, and that kind of struck me. And I don't know, some people have uh, different views of this idea of a sense of purpose or a word for purpose, but it, it kind of feels a bit like that, that, that you've got this second chance and you are doing something with it and that that's maybe motivating you to kind of keep going when it's tough because yeah it can, <laughs> it can be tough sometimes yeah yeah no that's exactly right and, and that's what my um my, my whole hashtag and my my brand choose your struggle is about you know when I was at my absolute worst back in that summer of 2009 I didn't get to choose what I was struggling for every day it was to avoid withdrawals which are horrible. It was to get off the couch and be a person, right? And not just be a, a sort of a life form that was laying around all day. That was my struggle. And I didn't get to choose that. That was chosen for me by, by what was going on inside my body, my chemistry, all that kind of stuff. Now that I'm healthy, now that I'm, I'm you know, sort of in recovery, I get to make that choice. Uh, and, and that choice is this. It's, it's working on the issues of substance misuse and mental health. And so when I work with clients, when I speak to large groups, when I'm consulting on business and for businesses, that is what I preach. And basically it comes, it comes down to unless you take a step back and do a little mindfulness and sort of survey what's going on around you, it's very easy to not choose your struggle. It's very easy to follow a definition of success, whether it's, you know, your parents have decided, uh, you know, you're going to be a doctor. And so you become a doctor or, you know, you're, we live in this culture where we are expected to just hoard money. Like that is, that is the number one goal in a capitalistic culture is to hoard money. And at the end of the day, yeah, you need to make sure you keep a roof over your head. But if you replace the word money with any other word, whether, I mean, we all saw this during COVID with toilet paper, it's absurd. And so if you're, if you're not being mindful about what makes you happy, you're going to find yourself completely unfulfilled. You know, as, as they say, nobody lies on their deathbed going, God, I wish I worked more. You know, that's just not a thing that, that happens. You always hear about these people going, I wish I'd spent more time with my kids. I wish I'd spent more time following my passions. Nobody dies going, thank God I spent 50 years of my life at company X. That, that's just not the world we live in. So uh, that's basically the meaning of choose your struggle. Make sure you're following your passions. And if you do that, like you said, uh, you're going to find success and it's not going to be the one that is going to work for you or work for the next guy. It's going to be the meaning of success that means the most to you. Mm. I, I love that idea because I think sometimes we can we can fall into this trap of thinking, oh, well, if I'm doing the the kind of the right thing for me, then it won't feel like work it will be it will all be easy and life will be amazing and actually <laughs> life <laughs> life is is it is a struggle at times so I like yeah. that idea that yeah you kind of choosing what you're working towards what you're kind of focusing your energy on doesn't mean it's all going to be a walk in the park and lovely yeah. you're going to be tough sometimes but you have that 
yeah, that that choice over it. Uh, yeah. Well Amazing. put. And, and yes, to those listening who think, wow, that guy must just be sitting back and drinking my, no, <laughs> it is. This is, <laughs> I'm lucky. I love what I do, but it's not that it doesn't feel like work. There are days where I sit down on my computer and I'm like, I got to be honest, I don't want to do these three back-to-back interviews today where I'm probably telling the same story over and over again. It is work at times, but I believe so strongly in the impact that this can have that it makes it worth it. And I think that Mm -hmm. is what people don't understand about exactly what you just said. It's not Mm -hmm. that it doesn't feel like work because it 100% does. It's hard. I'm not getting rich over here. I'm really lucky that, you know, like I said, I come from privilege and my wife makes good money. But at the end of the day, that's not my definition of success. My definition is having this impact and making sure that people feel comfortable talking about mental health and getting the help that they need. And when I see that, when I get that email from someone going, you know, hearing from you or hearing your lesson or, you know, X, Y, and Z, all worth it. And, and, and mm-hmm. all the, the t- 10, 12 hour days that I've spent, you know, doing whatever it is that I'm doing to try to get this message, message out there, it's, it's all worth it. Mm, yeah, absolutely. So I'd love to come back then uh, to, to the message a bit. Um, a couple of things. I guess the first one is what are some of those, and I know you mentioned the two kind of tropes that are quite often thought about, but are there any really common misconceptions or comments that people make that actually are really maybe harmful or really just completely way off base? How much time do you have? Um, <laughs> so actually I joke, but but I was hired as a subcontractor by a marketing organization that was doing work with a treatment center. And they hired me 100% to answer that question. And it took, I, I seriously, it took me hours to build this report for them. It was a 15 page report on that, on that question. So yes, I could talk about this for a while. Um, number one, and I just want to lay this out there because I think it's the most important to understand recovery and the recovery community is a very large tent. And there are sort of two poles. And one pole is the one that everyone and their mother can quote, and that's AA. And that is, you know, uh, sobriety is the only way. And then there's the other side, which is called harm reduction. Harm reduction is sort of the anti-AA. And in harm reduction, the, the mantra is, as long as you're using in a healthier way, as long as you are making healthier steps in your use, we're fine with it. Maybe one day that will mean quitting use altogether, but we're not going to say that every single person who's ever struggled with a substance has to be sober. So I fall sort of... 60% into that sort of the, the end of the spectrum. I am not sober. Uh, my very lucky for me, I never struggled with alcohol. And I say lucky because as a guy from the Midwest, whiskey is sort of my favorite thing in the world. And I can have a glass of whiskey at dinner with my wife. I can kick back and watch a movie with a glass of wine and be perfectly fine. I don't need, I don't, I don't have the need in my brain to misuse alcohol the way that I did with pills. Now I don't use pills. I, 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 my wife knows this as, as I always say, if I'm ever in a horrible car accident, she has to get to the hospital as quickly as possible and tell them only put him on what he has to, because we don't want to go through, you know, what he went through when he was uh, struggling with substance use. So that is sort of the, 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 a very 30,000 30, feet view of the, the recovery community. But sobriety is not the only way. Um, there's nothing wrong with sobriety. In fact, I was sober for a number of years after I got into recovery, but eventually I took the risk to try using alcohol, knowing, as I said, that I never had a struggle with that. And I was, I was okay. Um, so, so that's number one. Number two, uh, I would say is that terminology does matter. Um, sobriety is something that most people think they know the definition to, and it's actually uh, much more complex than a lot of people think it is. There are different groups that define it different ways, um, but that's not the only one. Uh, you know, words matter. The word clean is a word that we just don't, we don't use anymore. You'll hear it occasionally. And it's, it's, it's awkward. Um, because if you think about it, calling someone who's in recovery clean means they were the opposite when they were using. And would you ever call someone with cancer dirty? And they'd be like, hell man, why would you, why would you say that? So, um, you know, that's sort of an encapsulation of why you making sure you understand the words. Um, by the way, substance abuse is going that way as well. Um, you know, because when you, 
when you think of the word abuse, it's a very violent word. Uh, nobody, it, it, it goes into this, this uh, context that for the longest time, those of us who struggle with substances have been viewed as the guy who's breaking down doors and all that just BS. So uh, substance misuse is the new sort of accepted terminology in the medical community. Instead of calling someone an addict, you hear more that they're struggling with substance use disorder. That's sort of the clinical term that you're hearing a lot. So, so words definitely matter. Um, and, and it's, it's not always easy to know because different people use different words. Um, but if you're in the community, you know, we don't really, we're not going to fault you, but, but, if you're talking to someone in the community, it's always safer to say, you know, do you consider yourself sober? Do you call yourself in recovery? You know, what is it? Because um, those words mean very different things. And I've had interviews where I was interviewed by an AA podcast once and I told her I'm not sober. And yet she kept calling me sober because she was in the such the extreme camp that in their mind, only people who are sober are in recovery. And so she wouldn't even acknowledge that there was any other. And, and so those are the places where it gets a little sticky. But, um, you know, just as making sure that you're not you're not inadvertently being offensive by calling somebody something. Now, to be fair, if you call someone a junkie, you're just trying to be offensive. So uh, don't don't do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I think that's such an important point about uh, about language generally around mental health because there can be so many words that maybe used to be used right they carry such a meaning that they can be yeah really offensive or harmful when you're using them and i think that you know maybe just being open to to hearing someone's story and hearing how they talk about their experience and kind of the language that they use is is personally the kind of approach that i i try and take but um, I wonder if you have any um, any advice, any tips for anyone who either themselves has uh, been experiencing um, or has been, oh, I'm trying to phrase it now with the right language. Uh, <laughs> struggling with substance misuse? Struggling with substance misuse, there you go. Or someone who has a, a loved one who is possibly struggling with substance misuse, there you go. Uh, any advice that you would that you would give to them? Well, first off, thank you for for trying to use the right terminology. Sometimes I, I've seriously I gave this I was in an interview once where I, I went through basically that same spiel. And so he went, that's so interesting. So when you're talking to someone with who's uh, abusing substances, and I was like, you didn't, you didn't listen to a word I just said, did you? <laughs> like You had your question. You were like, yeah, yeah. Okay. So anyway, <laughs> Um, so if you're struggling with substance misuse right now, or if your loved one is, there's very different uh, sort of directions. If I'll start with the loved one. The, the, the number one tip I can give, and I know this is so hard, it is so hard, but it's the most important thing. Try to find patience, try to fi find understanding. So um, I was working with a family back uh, just before COVID started. And um, the mom was, was just tearfully talking to me. And she said, Jay, it's like he doesn't care what I want anymore. And I said, it's because he doesn't. You know, if you're treating him... If, if your interactions with him are just yelling, just all this stuff, at some point he's going to go, why, why would I open myself up to that, right? So what I try to tell them, and I know this is so much easier said than done, try to treat the person as if they have cancer, as if they have some other form of illness. And if your way of treating them doesn't mesh with that thought process, then you're you're doing this wrong. And Again, I know that's so much harder because most of the time people with cancer, you know, the, the way that that obviously impacts your brain is not any way similar to someone who's struggling with substance misuse. But knowing that in that moment, they're not making the choices that they would make if they weren't struggling, right? So that person is, if you have to think of it as an illness that way, then, then do that. That person is sick. Um, and also understand that, your view of what constitutes a struggle with substance misuse is not going to be the same as somebody else's. So, you know, yes, if you're, if you're putting the, the substance, if you're no longer in control of using that substance and you're putting it before, you know, things that normally would matter to you, that's a pretty clear cut sign of, of struggling with substance misuse, but that line isn't always so clear. And, and there are definitely situations, especially ones that I've worked in where the family has considered it misuse mostly just because the person was using at all. And 
that is where the puritanical sort of drug laws that, that especially our country, but exist a lot around the world come into play. Like perfect example is my fam. My mother used to drug test my brother in middle school or high school, I think early high school, because she was scared that he was addicted to weed. Now, obviously that's literally not possible, but also he was just using it on occasion with friends. That's not substance misuse. Now you may not be happy that your high schooler is smoking weed, but that's a very different conversation than actually considering them as struggling with substance misuse. So um, that's really more nuanced, but it's, it's important because it's a very different approach to, to having that conversation than accusing somebody of having uh, struggling with addiction when it's actually not there. If you yourself are struggling, number one, if you recognize it, know that there is hope out there. There is help. Um, there are people who will help you in healthy ways. We, for the most part, have moved beyond the idea that if you are struggling, you 100% have to go to a 12-step program. Like That doesn't really happen anymore. A lot of people still do, and that's okay. Uh, those can be very helpful. But if you go to a medical, uh, if you get medical assistance, chances are, I don't want to say 50-50, it's getting there. That person will be open to trying other methods of treatment. So if you're struggling with alcohol, um, there are medications you can take now. Now, these have been around forever. For whatever reason, the medical community just did not latch onto this until the last couple of years it is now getting more common to hear people who are struggling with alcohol misuse on naltrexone, which is a, uh, again, a drug that's been around for a long time. Uh, you know, buprenorphine and, and methadone and all these other dr drugs that are used to help treat um, struggling with opiates are, are everywhere. They're still not as easily accessible as they should be. And they're still, you have to jump through all these ridiculous hoops, but they are available. Know that there is help that may not be the one that your you know, grandma who heard something on Fox News and wants to send you to church camp, that ain't happening anymore. Yes, it's still around and still a problem, but there are actual real options now to get help. Yeah, and, and I guess there's my perception, which you hopefully agree with, but feel free to say it's nonsense if, if you think it is, is that with a recovery process that if it's something that someone's forced on you that you should go to this camp and this will sort it if you if it's something that you're kind of not on board for or you're not ready to do that process or or you're you're not really struggling with it it's more that you're choosing to to use that substance like you mentioned with your brother that that's not going to lead to um a, any type of recovery because you, yeah you have not got that sort that's of right. um i guess buy-in with with the process it's just my mum made me or my grandma made me or, right. or whatever no, 100%. That's 100% true. And, and you know, we have a saying, you can force someone in, into rehab, you can't force them into recovery. And, and we've been misled to think by mostly by the big book of AA, which kind of had this philosophy that if you just push hard enough, someone's going to buy in. And from shows like My Strange Addiction and Celebrity Rehab and all this BS, that if you just get someone into the door, then voila, oh my God, they're, they're healed. And that's just not the case. They, the person has to want this and they're not going to, if they don't see what they're doing as harmful. Now, again, I am not saying that every single person who doesn't think that they're struggling isn't actually struggling. That's not what I'm saying. I am saying that there are way more people who's, who others around them have decided they're struggling that are not actually doing so. And that's a conversation people need to have. The idea that if you throw up a banner, you know, and we're like, do, do a, do a, you know, intervention and all this stuff, that ain't gonna work. It, it, that's never worked. That was a myth. That was a, a fantasy. Don't do that. But have a conversation with your friends. Say, hey, man, I noticed you've been using a lot. You know, uh, are, are you okay? Are you using, you know, are you enjoying it? Um, no one ever did that with me. I was just sort of left uh, my own devices. And to be fair, I never reached out either. So that's sort of another piece of advice is reach out. There is somebody in your life who wants to have the conversation. They just don't know how. And, uh, you know, it does take a little bit of that uh, vulnerability piece to say, hey, you know, I think I'm really struggling here. Um, but but and that can be really hard. Like, don't get me wrong. I know that from experience. Uh, but it does pay off when when done well. And I guess if your concern is, oh, if I ask for help, that someone's going to force me into 
a program or something that I'm not ready for, it, it can deter people from actually reaching out. And Definitely. as you said, just having that conversation and being open to hearing yeah. their experience and, and hearing what's happening is probably going to allow you to support them more than just jumping straight in with like, well, let's get you to wherever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and kind of piggyback on that and say that I always offer this whenever I get interviewed, when I speak is that if you are afraid of that, because that's a very real fear. And I'm, I really appreciate you mentioning that, that because a lot of people see these ads on TV or they hear the way that their family members inadvertently uh, continue stigma around these struggles and go, Oh God, I can never tell them about this. If you have that fear, call me, email me, you know, message me on social media, because you and I can have that conversation where I will actually listen and be able to say, okay, so, so here are some options. Do any of these sound good to you? Instead of going, all right, I'm calling the, the kidnappers in the middle of the night who are going to come take you away because that is a real thing. And it's terrifying. Also, if, if you are ever going to consider doing that, don't do that. It's horrible. Never have your family member kidnapped. I don't think I have to say that. Unfortunately, I do never have your family member kidnapped. I did not know that that was a thing. And yeah. just just thinking about the the extra trauma and everything that you're giving this person, we're like, oh, you think you're yeah. safe at home, but actually, no, because I know what's best for you. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and they take them to these places that sometimes are not good. You know, I, I actually, there's a, a woman who does an awesome podcast. That was her experience where she got kidnapped essentially and went to the middle of the desert to a retreat where they forced her into sobriety. That shit doesn't work. Don't do that. <laughs> mm. Yeah. <laughs> Just, yeah. Ugh. Um. Yeah. I, I guess it's that. Oh, I don't, I don't even know. What I was going to say, but just don't do that. <laughs> Look, I get the family member who is that scared of what's happening to their family member at the base. That is a beautiful thing that if you love this someone so much, you are literally willing to have them kidnapped. Mm. Also, try just talking to them. Try saying, you know, wh why are you using? That is a question that you would be shocked or maybe you won't be. Most people never ask, you know, why are you doing this is a question that and I don't mean, you know, you asshole. How could you don't do that? But mm. I mean, like, literally, what are you getting out of this is something that most people don't ask, because if you did, there's a way to sort of keep boiling that down and going, all right, so you are afraid of this and that leads you to thinking this and that leads you to doing that, which then leads you to drink. If you can get down to that, that's what good psychologists do. That's mm. what mental health is built on is getting down to those fears. And if you can do that, you'd be shocked at how much easier these situations become. Mm. And that's actually my, what I was going to say was um, that, that yes, asking those questions, why are you doing it? And not in the kind of guilt tripping. Cause right. I think sometimes in that, I'm really worried about you. I want you to get help. So I'm going to try and I guess like emotionally manipulate you into doing like, oh, it's so upsetting for me. It's so hard for right. me. I'm really worried about you. And all of those things that may all be completely true, but it's not about understanding what that person's going through. It's not about trying to help them really. It's about, I want to fix it. I want to feel better. And so- right actually that yeah, can be really harmful if someone's trying to guilt you into doing something. Yeah. And, and perfectly said, you can say, I'm very worried about you as long as it then goes. And so I want to know about what's going on with you and not let me tell you all the ways you're hurting me. That, that never forces anyone to change. It forces someone to feel guilty, but mm. you're never going to change because you feel guilty. You have to want to make a change. That's literally how change works. So whoever came up with this idea that guilting someone into making a change is, is the way to do it. I, I just don't get it. I don't like that doesn't jive with any of the things we know about the way that our cognitive process works. Mm. There's a great quote by someone, I don't know who, uh, <laughs> which is um, the, this idea of seeking to understand first before you can in any way influence or change or whatever and so if you don't understand the reasons why someone is using what it is uh, serving for them or then you can't really help or influence is that seek to understand first and uh, yeah that's right awesome before we move on to my set questions I wonder if you have a final thought on mental health substance misuse life anything yeah, so I, I've already said reach out. That's the one I make sure I say all the time. But it's sort of the second message I always leave is that 
you know, I, to make it clear to your listeners, so I do have my degree in psychology. I have a whole bunch of certificates and all that stuff. To me, none of that stuff really matters. Yes, it's great information. And I love that I have all of it. And I'm constantly doing more to get more info because quite frankly, the, 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 speed at which we are starting to understand the brain and these issues is changing incredibly rapidly. If your response to hearing people talk about this stuff that isn't in a, you know, let's say a, a you know, higher education setting is get out of my sandbox. You're part of the problem. And I shouldn't have to say that, but I get that a lot. And it's not, I'm not alone there. Everyone who does this work has a story about someone with a PhD telling them you're out of your element. Look, I get it. I get that you worked your life to, to get this information and I want you at this table. That's the difference. I and all of us who do this work with and doing this with lived experience, we want everybody at the table. Too often, people who come from the learned side of this stuff believe that it should only be those with learned experience. And quite frankly, you will never know what it feels like to spend your mornings wrapped around a toilet because you're going through withdrawals and you shouldn't want to. But that doesn't mean that you and I can't be here working together. We are losing way too many people every year to issues of mental health and, and substance misuse. As we say, we're nowhere close to batting a thousand on this thing. Everybody should want more people at the table, not less. So let's keep let's come together. Let's do all this work together instead of forcing people out. Yeah, absolutely awesome final thought as well right. uh so yeah i have some set questions to ask everyone and i'd love to hear your thoughts on these let's do it yeah so the first one is what brings you joy in your life that's a wonderful question um i am really lucky that i love what i do but i also uh and i, and I work really hard but i also know when to stop and so i have wonderful hobbies um, I, I'm a record collector, vinyl, vinyl record, been doing so since I was in high school. Um, and I, and I love, uh, there's something about the sound quality. I know every, every record collector says that, but there really is something about the sound quality of hearing something on, on, on vinyl. Um, and so that's, that's a big source of joy. I also am a, a memorabilia collector. So sports autographs, all that kind of stuff. Um, I am, like I said earlier, big into whiskey. I blend my own. I, my wife and I have a collection, currently probably 40 bottles, uh, big, big whiskey drinkers. Um, like I said, I'm married. I love my wife very much. We have a very adorable little two-year-old dog who is uh, our, our pride and joy. We love her. Um, and, 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 you know, I, basically the, it boils down to is I'm big into things that bring me joy, big reader, um, big, uh, was an athlete growing up, still work out as much as I can and, and, and into sports. Um, and, and so I never miss an opportunity to do something, um, that brings me joy. Awesome. Awesome. I love that. What type of dog do you have? She is a, a setter mix. So she's oh. part stabby hound, which is a, a, a breed from, uh, one of the Scandinavian countries, I think. Okay. Weirdly, we got her as a rescue. Those dogs are very desirable and she must have just run off somewhere. So we, we rescued her about a year and a half ago. She was still a young puppy at the time. Oh, awesome. Yeah. I, lo I love dogs. So it's, yeah. <laughs> my dog <laughs> is a little old man, but he is also our baby. <laughs> yeah. So my next question is what makes life meaningful for you? Oh man, uh, my work for sure. You know, like I said earlier, when I get that email or that message from that person, um, you know, that, that, that I've had an impact that, that is meaningful to me. Um, you know, I, I would say that the number one thing for me, and this comes from my parents, we were always taught that, yeah, what you do, you know, behind your desk and yeah, as a, as a kid, the grades you got, those are all important, but the most important thing is how, what kind of human you are. And so, Growing up, um, we would have the, the, the sort of the two topics of conversation were the family business, because my dad was a, the CEO of our family business, but then also, you know, the kind of community impact we were having, where we were volunteering, um, you know, if we would recently come up or found a new um, community uh, program that we loved a lot that we were giving money to, whatever the case was. So uh, that is sort of the thing that my wife and I spend the most time talking about, uh, making sure that we are not 
doing what unfortunately a lot of people with privilege do and just creating wealth for the next generation. Uh, if they give to charity at all, make giving to charities that only impact the wealthy, you wouldn't think that was a thing, or maybe again, you would, I didn't think that was a thing. And then all these studies come out that like 78% of charitable giving from the wealthiest people in the world go directly to the wealthy community. You know, it's their church that only the wealthy people go to it's their school. You know, Harvard has billions of dollars in their endowment. Quite frankly, yes, there are some people getting a chance to go to Harvard, which is awesome. Most of those kids are, are not, you know, coming from non-wealthy backgrounds. So making sure that we are actually involved in ways that are trying to make the world a better place and not just our pond a better place is big for us. Yeah, absolutely. I was just thinking about how kind of charity works in the, in the UK. And I think there are endowment funds like that. But I think, you know, our um, animal charity is like one of the most popular because we're all like nation of animal lovers. And and so I think we do mm-hmm. tend to have some, and we're a much smaller right. country. So it's easier to have a kind of national charity than I imagine it is in, in the U S but yeah, it tends to be cause based, I think, but I could be completely, completely wrong. About the yeah. UK. I, I know very little about English charitable giving. Um, but my, my first career was, uh, or second career was, was in, uh, nonprofits. I was in nonprofit fundraising for about six years. And there is a clear distinction between what we call the nice to haves and the need to haves, right? The need to have is something that without it, people would probably die, you know, soup kitchens where it's sadly the only place a lot of people are getting their food. Now, as my wife likes to remind me, she also comes from that world, a soup kitchen at the end of the day is a band-aid because in reality we shouldn't need them people should have enough to eat but unfortunately with our, our politics and that's a whole nother matter i also worked in politics for a while and uh with our politics they're not going away anytime soon those are need to have i worked for make-a-wish which is a beautiful organization don't get me wrong seeing the kids smiles was wonderful that's a nice to have nobody is on. Un- Fortunately, nobody is dying without Make-A-Wish. Nobody is going uh, to go hungry without Make-A-Wish. And also the the chapter I worked for, uh, way too many of the kids, um, quite frankly, didn't really need these dollars. Their families had enough to take them to Disney World already. So uh, nothing against Make-A-Wish. Again, it was a wonderful organization. but we should be giving to more need to haves than nice to haves. You know, let's make sure everybody has a place to sleep tonight. Let's make sure everybody has clothes on their backs uh, instead of seeing people smile. Mm. Yeah. I think about some of our, our big charities and we have things like cancer research UK, which is uh, purely funds research that doesn't get government support. And so it's, Yeah, and so there's a lot that are very kind of cause driven, but we we also have Make a Wish, and we have the nice to have, some the the need to have, and you know. Um, anyway, we're kind of going off on a tangent, but you know, it's it's good. Maybe <laughs> you know, for, for people listening, if you you know, if you donate to charity, if you give, to kind of think about who you're giving to, maybe and. Uh, yeah. And these are really big questions that people in the nonprofit world have all the time. If you disagree with me on the on the especially the make a thing, that that's okay. I mean, there are even on the, you know, farther down from me, there are people who, you know, are debating whether it's okay for someone like Bill Gates to come into Africa and completely wipe out disease, which I think is wonderful, but there's a lot of problematic pieces that come with that. Why is this white man the one coming in to save a continent? Why aren't we working more together? Why, you know, there, there are a lot of good questions that don't get answered unless we have the uncomfortable conversations. And that's not just obviously with, with charity, what we're seeing on a global scale when it comes to struggling against, you know, system injustices, are really uncomfortable conversations. But if we don't sit with that uncomfortableness, if we don't have these conversations, change doesn't get made at all. So what I'm, what I always say is, if you think I'm wrong, tell me, but tell me why. And it's not, if the answer is because I'm making you uncomfortable, that's not a good reason to think I'm wrong. If it's because you have empirical evidence or data, or you have a different thought process I want to hear that. I mean, that's how we have good conversations. But I I literally say this when I give speeches, because my story, you know, of being misdiagnosed, of being over-medicated really upsets a lot of people because, you know, they defend my psychologist. They 
Um, you know, sometimes it's a grandma whose son or grandson is on, you know, high levels of medication. And I've had people yell at me for, oh, you're, you know, how could you say this against medication? If you think I'm wrong because you think I'm wrong, that's not okay. If you think I'm wrong because you don't like how I'm making you feel, that's not okay. If you think I'm wrong because your data shows me that I'm wrong, that's the conversation I want to have. If you think I'm wrong because you did a trial and 50 patients got better, I want to hear that. But if you're just mad that I'm saying something that upsets you, I honestly don't care about your opinion. We can have that conversation, but I'm not going to change my mind because you're yelling at me because you're mad at me. Mm, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. So my, my next two questions, and these are the kind of overarching aim of the or topic of the podcast is mental well-being, mental wellness. So the first question is, what does mental wellness mean to you? Yeah, so I would say that it is a constant struggle. Nobody is well all the time. You know, we used to think of mental health as either you're healthy or you're ill. I mean, there was like black and white, two buckets. Now we recognize it's a spectrum. And sometimes you're over here and sometimes you're over there and whatever the case is. I would say it is it doesn't even have to do with with illness or health. It's more a, a comfort level. It's, it's a place of being stable. And, and if that means, you know, my stability is I rate my day every day. It's a, it's an exercise I recommend everybody do because it gives you a moment to sit with your day and go, okay, how did this go? I know that when things are good, I'm between a three and a four on a five point scale every day. I just, I, I literally have the data now of doing this for, for a number of years. I know that's where I sit. So if I'm at a five, I know a crash is coming. And if I'm at a one or a two, or if I'm stuck between a two and a three, I know I'm not doing enough to take care of my, my wellness. So for some people, if they're at a five all the time, being at a three would be a, a red flag. And so I'm not going to say that for everyone, it means being at a five or for everyone, it means being between a three and four. That's just where I am. So for me, it means being stable. It means being comfortable with where you are. And if that means that you're you're just the type of person that you're usually at a two or a three, as long as you're staying between that two or a three, then we're, we're okay here. You know, if you're down at a one, let's let's talk because it means that there's something going on with you. Mm. Yeah, and I love that idea of that really checking in with yourself and, and seeing where you're at. And that maybe partly answers my my next question, but the, the kind of follow-up is how you look after your mental well-being. So if you notice that you're kind of lower, lower down that scale than you'd like to be, what do you do to to look after your well-being. So there are three exercises I do every day. The the first or the third one is one I just mentioned. So I, I sit at the end of the day and I rate my day. And I have an app for it. So I because I I have the worst memory. And if if something doesn't I'm that person that if it's not in front of me, it just doesn't exist. So uh luckily I have an app that pops up every day around 8 30 or 9 at night and says, How was your day? Um, so that's number three. Number one at the beginning of the day is I do positive affirmations before anything else. And I actually just posted about this on LinkedIn. I sat down on my computer earlier this week. The first thing I did was submitting my application for a speaking opportunity. Before I finished the second task on my to-do list, I got the rejection for that same thing. And first off, props to them for being that quick. I've never had that happen before. Thank you for that. Also, if I hadn't started my day going upwards, that would be a hit that would send me downwards. But because I already started going upwards with the positive affirmations, yeah, it knocked me back a few rungs briefly, but I was still up there because I had started my day with positive affirmations. So that's number one. Number two, between those two things, I do a a daily check-in every day. And what that means is this is my form of mindfulness. I'm not a big meditator. I've never really found the benefit. I can do it. It's fine. I get a little benefit. Um, And it's not saying that I don't think it's a great thing for people to do. It just doesn't work for me. I personally sit down every day in a quiet spot. I take out my phone and I write the words I feel and I just start going. And, and, you know, early on, the first couple of things are I feel hot. It's very warm in this room. I feel, you know, angry that my wife said whatever. And then you start getting into the deeper stuff. You know, I feel worried because I haven't had a gig in a month. I feel whatever the case is. And when you can start boiling that stuff down and you get to what's really down at the bottom, you know, our, our, our minds are like a garden. And, and if you don't know the, the, the 
really horrible things that are growing up in the subconscious, you won't know until they're blossoming up there in the consciousness. That's not good. That's too late to deal with them. I mean, you can, but it's, it's never going to be good. You want to deal with that stuff down at the roots. And so sitting there and actually digging into what's going on in my head is super helpful for me. Yeah, awesome. That's a, I think that's a great suggestion because sometimes we can do just the superficial stuff, but just having that time and that space and seeing, yeah, what, what comes up is, is fab. Uh, my next question, sometimes a challenge, is can you describe your own mindset? Yeah, that's a, a, a great one. My, my wife likes the joke that my mindset is never be boring. Um, and that is because I... I just, I hate being bored because I think that in 2020, if you're bored, it's kind of your fault. Like there's so much going on. We literally have the entire internet on our phones, in our pockets at all times. Be learning something, you know, be reading. There's so much good uh, content being produced right now. Really important conversations being started if you're doom scrolling, as they say, you're missing out on the good stuff. So, so uh, that would be number one, but also I create that around me. So like my wife and I were in the gym earlier, we're really lucky at the apartment complex we live in, you can reserve the gym. So even during COVID, she and I have been reserving it just for the two of us, which is wonderful. And we were in the gym, you know, and my wife goes in there and she just busts out what everything she's doing. It's like, she finishes on the bike, she jumps over into the weights. You know, I'm the type of person where it's like, I do a rep, uh, do a couple, you know, sets or something on the weights. And then I have a dance off in the mirror with myself. And then, you know, I get on the bike and while I'm on the bike, I'm playing Pokemon go. And then I get up and have another dance off. And then I'm texting my buddy. Like, that's just, that's just the way I live. I'm constantly trying to create happiness for me, for people around me. Um, I do, there are two things of, of affirmations and sort of get ways of giving th- thanks, gratitude uh, built into my calendar every week. Uh, Monday morning affirmations, thanking somebody in my life uh, and bringing them awareness if they're doing something cool that I think people should know about. And on Friday, I Venmo a friend $5. Uh, I call it Friday Coffee on Jay. And it's just a way for me to say thank you to someone in my life. And then I post about it on LinkedIn. I mean, on, on Instagram. So uh, I just want to create positivity around me again it's those those waves you know you never know maybe that person wasn't feeling so hot and and i've actually had someone say this where they've responded like you don't know this but i was having a horrible week this really was a pick me up i needed you never know so i i like to create all the all the positivity around me that i can Mm, i love that it's so simple and easy but like you say you can give someone such a boost just to, to have that 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 small thing. Uh, my next question, and I feel like we've already given people loads of great tips and you gave your kind of three uh, things that you do. Cause I normally ask people to leave one to three tips of what they would recommend people do in their life. So it might just be reiterating what you've already said, but do you have one to three tips you recommend for people? I've got more. Um, so, so number one, uh, vulnerability and, and is it okay. So this may sound like, well, of course, There have been studies, one just came out the other day that showed that vulnerability actually makes you happier. Uh, And I actually tweeted about it with a very snarky, like, oh my God, who would have thought? But, you know, sometimes it needs to be said, the simple things need to be said. Being vulnerable can makes you feel connected with other people. Feeling connected makes you happier. It's that simple. So uh, I always give this stack because it, it blows my mind. Actually, I'll, I'll do the little game with you. You're, I always do this with, with men, but I, I want to see if you can get this. There was a study in psychology today that came out, I think, in February, where it said something like 95% of all male relationships revolved around three topics. Can you guess what those three topics were? For men or just generally? For men, what those three topics were that that ninety it was like ninety five percent of conversations between male friends revolved around. I, d- I don't know. I feel like maybe I'm going to play into like really stereotypical stuff and say like I don't know sports. That's number one. You're you're right with stereotypes. Keep going with. Okay. Them. <laughs> uh, I don't know <laughs> work. Nope. Is work what? No. Okay. Um, I don't know alcohol. <laughs> nope. No, nope, I don't know then. <laughs> Music. So you were right with sport. That's so sports is one. Oh, music, films, uh, movies, media, stuff like that is two. Women or sex is three. Ninety-five percent. If you included food, that was the fourth one. It was ninety-nine percent of male conversations revolve around those four things. 
I say that because this story gave these examples of like one guy had been homeless for two years and his friends didn't know. Another guy said, no joke, I got divorced a decade ago. None of my friends have asked about how my wife is doing. We just don't. That's just the way men act. And we've been taught that vulnerability in men is a bad thing. That is so harmful. That's where toxic masculinity comes from. The whole boys don't cry issue. So I made a rule with my friends. We can talk about those because quite frankly, I like those topics. I'm a big sports guy. Um, You know, music is a big part of my life and I love my wife, but you know, guys talk about women. It's what we do. Also, we need to have real conversations too. And so my friends know if we're going to talk about one of those things, I'm then going to go, all right, now tell me about what's going on in your life. And so some of them have gotten used to that and now go, okay, so let me beat you to it, you know, which is great. But be vulnerable. And, and I have a saying on my podcast that vulnerability begets vulnerability and empathy begets empathy. And I say that because sometimes guys feel like, I don't know where to begin. I feel weird asking my buddy about what's going on with his life. Well, the easiest way to start is just telling them, hey, man, this is what's happening with me. You will be shocked at how frequently someone goes, oh, wow, I didn't know that. You know, when I was going through X and all of a sudden you go, man, I never had no idea that that happened to you, you know, and that's how we create tighter bonds. And as I say to people who push back on that, like, I don't want to have those conversations. That means it's not really a friendship. That's just an acquaintance that you do things with. And we all have those and those are fine. And I'm not saying that that's the person that you should be telling your deepest, darkest feelings to. That's okay. But if there's someone in your life who you truly believe is a close friend and you don't feel comfortable having these conversations, sorry to tell you, they're actually not a close friend. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think that's such such an important uh, tip and reminder. And that brings me to my final question which is where people can find you if they want to reach out and talk to you, if they want to find your podcast, where can they find you? Well, Hannah, this was a lot of fun. I appreciate it. I know we went a little longer than, than you normally said. And, and as a fellow podcaster, uh, I love that because it gives me more to work with and cutting it down. But sometimes I feel really bad. I'm like, oh, you know, that was such a good comment, but those were better comments and all that. So good luck with that if you're going to cut it. Um, no, you're shaking your head. Okay. I, I don't, I don't, I don't cut, don't cut it. Anything. I just, uh, I thought, no, I just kind of just tied it up a little <laughs> bit, but that's why I sort of was like, uh, you know, when we were saying about life being hard and I was feeling a bit tired, I was like, right now I'm going to try and be strict with half hour. And then it was just really good stuff. <laughs> so we've gone longer. So it's absolutely fine. <laughs> well, thank you. I'm glad that, that it, I'm at least made it fun. Um, the easiest way to find me is at my website, jshiffman.com, J-A-Y-S-H-I-F-M-A-N.com. I am Jay Schiffman or Choose Your Struggle on every social media. Uh, and, and I do most of my work on LinkedIn. And I do that because for the longest time, we kept these conversations off LinkedIn because it wasn't appropriate to talk about your mental health at work. Well, before COVID, we were spending just as much waking, as many waking hours with our colleagues as we were with our family. If you're going through something, who's going to notice quicker? The person that you sleep next to or the person you're spending eight hours a day sitting next to? We have to have these conversations at work. So there's actually a pretty strong community of those of us who do this work on LinkedIn. Uh, I can't recommend it enough. Come join our community. We would love to have you. We're always posting awesome things to talk about. Find me on LinkedIn and find the Choose Your Struggle podcast uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Awesome. And I will absolutely link in the show notes as well. So people can find you nice and easily from there. Thank you so much, Jay. I've, I've really Thank enjoyed you. speaking with you and, and kind of hearing your story and, uh, and your obvious passion for, for what you're talking about uh, really comes across. <laughs> and I think it's so important uh, that, that you're out there just spreading your message and um yeah having these conversations so thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your wisdom with us well thank you for having me this was a lot of fun welcome so thanks again to jay for joining us and wasn't it a great conversation i loved it (laughs) um and I I think Jay is doing such amazing work. So massive thank you to him for joining us. And I just wanted to throw out some um, support lines, I guess, some information for anyone who is listening, who is thinking, actually, I'm concerned about my substance use, whether it's drugs, alcohol, um, 
I'm concerned about my use or I, I you know, I want some advice. Uh, these are UK specific lines, I'm afraid, but potentially, depending where you are, they've got email and, and, and text as well. So potentially you might be able to contact them or there may be equivalent wherever you are based. But in the UK, there is Frank. The website is talktofrank.com, which is about drug use. Uh, so they've got some information. They also have a telephone number. Uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, which is 0300-123-6600. You can text a question to them at 82111 or send an email via their website. So they also have a live chat between 2 and 6 p.m., seven days a week. That is UK time. So if you're concerned particularly about drug use, you can talk to Frank. And in the UK particularly alcohol related, there is a a service called drinkaware.co.uk. They have a free online chat called Drink Chat um, and also Drink Line, which is available 9am to 8pm weekdays, 11am to 4pm weekends. And that number is 0300 123 1110. And these, I have not personally used these services, but I know that they are ones that the Samaritans signpost to and they only signpost organisations who have a similar ethos of being open and non-judgmental, which I think is really important. So if listening to this, you think, actually, I want to talk to someone more, obviously you can contact Jay, as he so graciously said, but these are two other services that potentially Uh, you could chat to or if you just generally want to have a chat you can call the Samaritans on 116123 or you can drop them an email so if you are concerned about whatever or just generally I mean with anything that's going on in the world at the moment and you're struggling and you want someone to chat to I always suggest the Samaritans um it's an amazing service and it really can help to talk to someone non-judgmentally who isn't going to try and pressurize you into making any kind of decisions like we uh, we talked about in this conversation it can really help to talk to someone and open up about how you're feeling so if you're struggling at the moment whatever you are struggling with in your life please do consider reaching out to talk to someone um, if you can Thank you again to Jay. As I said, I think he's doing such amazing work. Um, I really, really enjoyed our conversation. And I think it's such a valuable conversation to have. I really hope you've enjoyed it. If you have, please do rate and review. It really helps us to reach more people. And if you know someone who you think might enjoy listening to the show, please do share it with them. That's everything for today. We will be back on Wednesday. I'll speak to you then. Be kind to yourself. Take care. Bye for now.